So I, I know you've got a lot going on. But remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. The shark has such teeth death and it shows them pearly white Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe And it keeps it uh, out of sight You know when that shark bites So welcome to Macklin's Take, everybody. Hope everybody is well who's tuning in and listening to this one. I'm Andy Clark, and with me, as always, sitting alongside me is Matt Macklin. And today, we are joined by... A man who you will see in corners up and down the country, who you would have seen cornering top, top fighters for a long, long time. Sometimes you'll see his name on our Sky Graphics. Sometimes you won't. It depends on what instructions he has given me. He's uh, part of the Anthony Joshua team. He's been part of Carl Froch's team, Darren Barker's. There are many sights and sounds and things that he's experienced in boxing, and he's going to share some of them with us. And and just expound a little bit upon his role down the years, and it is Mark Seltzer. Seltz, thank you very much for, for joining us. It's a, it's a pleasure to see you as always. Pleasure, Andy. Pleasure, Matt. Thanks for your company. I'm sure we're going to have an interesting and open, frank discussion on the world of <laughs> professional boxing since well, I've been involved. Well, let's just talk about your, about your particular role because as I say, you're, you're a corner man, you're a, you're a cuts man. And the role of the cuts man does kind of fascinate me. It's not just the, the logistics of it. It's not just how you do it when a fighter gets cut. It's just every fighter needs a cuts man. And the better the fighter, a top fighter will want a top cuts man. And you're obviously seen as being that because of the fighters that you've worked with. But ideally, none of them want you to ever have to do anything. Ideally... You would never need to do a single thing in a corner because it would be much better for the fighter if they never, ever get cut. So, in a way, it's a bit, it's a bit of a weird gig. I've got to interrupt there because it's picking up what you're saying. The cutsman is the guy that you're happy to pay for doing nothing. <laughs> Basically, as a fighter, that's the one guy you're happy to pay for doing nothing. 
and I'm happy to receive payment for doing for nothing, I can tell you. Because, you know, obviously, depending on the fight and de- depending on the fighter, I'm, I'm more nervous, probably, than the fighters are. And depending on, on what fighter you're actually working with, some fighters cut easier than others. Some fighters, you don't even really have to do anything at all. And that's a nice night's work. But... You know, it's not, it's not just being a cut man. I've like assimilated myself to being like the engineer in the uh, in the engine room. You work the corner behind the scenes, as well as doing your own cut work. You know, giving water, making sure the ice is right, making sure everything's running as it should do. I always tend to run the clock when I'm working. I'm letting know the chief second how long there is in the bout communicating just imparting a little bit of information where necessary and you know depending on who who you work with and your sort of similarity with the trainer and the fighter sometimes I'll say absolutely nothing sometimes I feel like I've maybe got to say something so it, it just depends on the team that you're working with but you know as Andy said and as as Matt's just said I'd rather not do anything and it's it's a good night's work for the fighter and, and myself. But allied to that, when you do need to do something, it's important. It can be absolutely critical and, and the pressure is is on. You can't really do anything in advance. Either it happens or it doesn't happen. And then you've got what, forty seconds maybe by the time they're sat down and then by the time you need to get them ready to get back up at the end of the minutes break. You've got forty seconds to to weave your magic I mean how how much better at it have you got over the years is, is it one of those roles where experience is, is absolutely key I think that is a key word experience when, when I first started um, I'll confess I was nervous a bag of nerves you know I'm trying to think one of the first fights I did possibly Lee Meager um, when it was me and Rob up in, I think it might have been Huddersfield, and Rob always tells this story about me treating the wrong eye, the eye that's not cut. But it's it's knowledge, it's gaining experience. You try to pick things up, and I was taught by a number of people, Danny Tovey, Tony Sims, Terry Stewart, you know, 15, 20 years ago. When you do it in the gym, it's not like in a fight environment you know it's like you know you can be the best sparring partner you can be the best fighter in the gym but when you're actually on the stage working under pressure in a major fight then that's when it counts and yeah I'd I'd like to think that I, I try to be as calm as possible just get on with the job you know it's as simple as that quiet calm and collected and just do what's got to be done I mean a corner can be an interesting place between rounds but particularly if there's a cut because as the fighter comes back to the corner no one will really know how bad it is and everybody will want to know the fighter will be asking you how bad is it the trainer might be saying how bad is it the promoter manager might wander over and stick their beak in the doctor might get involved the referee will want to have a look and all of a sudden you've got the shit's hitting the fan and you've got all of these people and you've just got to try and block them out uh, and just go about 
go about your, your business and, and try and make sure that the boxer, particularly if it's not happened to them before, mm. doesn't get too spooked. Exactly that. The, the first thing I say, if a fighter gets cut, don't worry about it. That's the first thing I say, because they are obviously anxious. Is it bad? Is it this? Is it that? And I will say, don't worry about the cut. It's nothing. Listen to whoever. Listen to Rob. Listen to Tony. Listen to Peter. Concentrate on the fight. The cut's nothing. Let me get on with my job, and I'll deal with it. So it's just dispelling their anxiety that they might fail having getting cut for the first time, or if they regularly get cut. It's just saying, it's nothing to worry about. We use a few expletives. It's nothing. Get on with it. Listen and fight. And that and that is it in a nutshell, really. Just smoothing over the cracks. Do you remember the first time you got a bad cut? Yeah, I, I probably... I'm not sure how many times I got cut now. Maybe seven or eight times. Maybe it was ten. I don't know. But um, never. I don't think I ever got cut so badly where I felt that the fight was in, in danger of being called off or anything like that. There was, you know, generally seven, eight stitches round the eye um, but Mick Williamson was I think pretty much the corner for most of my career and he always did a good job um, and I always just left it to him as you said there Mark uh, Mick had always, I, I just didn't worry about it I knew he knew what he was doing I knew he was a good cutsman and it, it was important me worrying about it ain't going to change the cut <laughs> it ain't going to slow the bleeding down if you start worrying about it so I was just very much trying to Stay focused on the fighting hand and leave that to the, the the man that you're paying to do the job and he, and and have absolute faith that that he would do that and, and luckily for me I never it never really caused me a massive issue in a fight I've had blood run into the eye and it you know blurs the vision a little bit but you get back to the corner and and, and generally uh, Mick always was was able to you know slow the bleeding down and, and and stop it bleeding and uh, never really hindered me in the fight but. I know some people, I mean, Ricky Hatton early doors had some terrible cuts. When he fought John Thaxter, you know, 15 yeah. seconds into the fight, he's 21 years age, British title fight, and the cut was uh, was terrible right across his eye. You know, then then the other guy, other guy goes, uh, sorry, other eye goes, you know, and that's a you know, 12 round fight, never been past six before. I mean, I remember thinking to myself, what a performance, you know, for a young kid really at 20, you can, you can, it's easy to forget how good Ricky was, yeah, do you know was, what I mean? Because yeah. I know. Yeah. You know, he was at such a level at the time. But that, I mean, 21 years old to get those cuts that time, it, uh, so early on in, 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 a, in a tough fight, he, um, he boxed out his skin. But he obviously had total faith. He'd, he'd been cut a few times at that point. Mm. Don't get me wrong, because he, he, he cut like paper early doors, Ricky. He, he, was, yeah. uh, he had that kind of skin. Um, but he, at that point, being a bit of a veteran for getting cuts, it, it, it helped him cope with it. it he, didn't, he didn't panic. He just stuck to his his game plan you know, and, he, and, he, and he fought his own fight but that's probably one of the biggest things you've got to kind of drum into a young fighter who hasn't been cut first if you get caught don't worry don't exactly, panic exactly that yeah. I'll sort it get back to the corner and I'll sort it because you know the panic if he starts getting too edgy then starts lunging in or you know because he's thinking you know, I'm going to get disqualified because of the court and then you know starts loading up throws off his game plan but I, I think from a fighter's point of view Having someone in your corner doing your cuts that you know has been there before, peace of mind, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? And that, and, and you, you mentioned Mick Williamson. I've been fortunate to work with Mick for the last probably 10 years as well. I've picked up a lot from Mick also. But, but, but something you touched on there is reiterating to the fighter not to worry. A referee will go in before a title fight and say, these are the rules. 
I don't want you to do this. He explains things. And within that sort of speech, he'll say, you cut, man. I'll let him work on your cut. So it gives them a peace of mind that the referee's imparting that information. When he's gone, I'll re- reiterate that. Remember what he said. If you get cut, don't worry. We'll work on it. Your job is to fight and just carry on and not be conscious of any injuries that you're getting. We'll take care of anything. You know, eye swells, they can be a nightmare as well as cuts. You know, using the end swell correctly. There's, there's a lot of things that kids don't experience until it, it actually happens and you have to deal with it on the spot. Staying calm, that, that's absolutely key. And making sure that you've got all the things that you need, that is really important. It, it sounds very, very obvious, but there are some examples from, from down boxing history of, of corners not having crucial pieces of, of kit. You mentioned the end swell there. Probably the, the most famous one is Tyson against Buster Douglas, where Tyson's corner didn't have one. Uh, they filled a rubber glove with, with ice and used that. The rumour always was that they filled a condom with ice, but they... They, they vehemently uh, uh, deny that, Aaron Snoller and Jay Bright. But how paranoid are you about making sure that you've got everything that you need? Very paranoid. And it goes back to the Lee Meager fight. We're in the corner. Rob says, where's the ice bag? I've looked down. I've asked for the ice bag. The ice bag's back in the squash courts because we used it with Tony Doherty on a previous fight. And it, it you know, been forgotten. So I, without fail, I always double-check the ice tray that we've got everything. And I generally duplicate what we should have. I'll have two ice bags. I have three end swells. I have more than enough. And I think the good thing is when we've got more than one end swell, what I tend to do is rotate them so they're actually staying colder when you're using them. So I'll rotate from, I've got one with a green green sort of band in black and one that's plain metal and I will just rotate them on a systematic basis so they're actually staying colder each round so the corners that you've worked and then you work with Rob Rob McCracken who you, who you referred to earlier on Tony Sims you 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 corner pretty much all of all of his fighters have any of them been renowned bleeders that you've worked with down the years Hey, everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes, it's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital podcast coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go. This is so crazy. Uh, thinking back, crotch, very little, one or two. Mainly his problem was his nose. We used to call it the lamb chop. After a round, it was like a bit great big lamb chop coming back. The old I can't talk about noses, by the way. The old, the old beaks as red as a beetroot. But um, there's been none that have been really particularly bad. Having said that, Felix Cash, as of late, he, he can. There's 
fighters that have cut and then an old cut will reopen. So you're always conscious of previous cuts that you've worked on and just just basically trying to keep things in hand and keeping the adrenaline and the swabs on hand for, you know, hopefully the eventuality that never happens, then you just have to deal with it. But, you know, o- over the years, there's never been any particularly bad bad fighters that have, that have cut. So how did those relationships start with, with Tony and, and Rob then? Right, um, let's go back, turn the clock back probably 20-odd years. I um, worked in a leisure centre in East London, uh, the Atherton, and Jim McDonnell used to bring his fighters in there for, for rub-downs. There was a master there, there called Rupert Dowries, who was actually Lennox Lewis's stepfather who was a, an exceptional masseur. And Jimmy used to bring all his fighters into our leisure centre. And at that time, I was doing a bit of training with Steve Roberts, who was with Matchroom. He was a, a southpaw West, like middle. West Ham kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah West Ham kid, yeah. Very good fighter. His future wife was a receptionist in the leisure centre. So I used to go to Matchroom gym and train with Steve and George Fitzpatrick. So I was doing boxing training then and yeah, I thought about maybe fighting as an amateur but I was too old. So I spoke to Jim, do you do privates? Yeah, not a problem. So I became a private client of Jim McDonnell and I said, I want to do you know, an amateur fight. No, you can't. You're over 35. So yeah, I think he's right in saying I went into the unlicensed stuff I did a, a few fights at the Circus Tavern, fisticuffs with Lester Jacobs, who was doing his own promotions at the time, uh, a, f- a few sort of white-collar fights. And my relationship grew with Jim McDonnell and Tony Sims because we were all sharing the same gym, so Tony used to train me. I used to train with the pros. I used to spar with Takaloo. Toxo, uh, even Danny Williams, would you believe? When Jim was, was, was training those fighters, and it sort of developed from that relationship. Um, Tony and Jim said, You know, we think you should apply for a seconds license, which I did do. The second license went from a seconds license matchmaker's license, international agent's license, manager's license. At one stage, I had five licenses. And that's when we were all sort of working with various promoters. Um, we were all sharing the same gym, then, which was in Wanstead Rugby Club. Was that when they set up TBS? Tony Sims, yeah. Danny Tovey and... Exactly that, yeah. 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 yeah, it was TBS. So I came into TBS. Jimmy worked with Frank Warren with his fighters. Tony worked with Warren as well. Then we had a bit of a separation of ways. Um, Tony signed up with Energy Sports. who were then a fledgling sort of promotional outfit. And Jimmy... Went his way with, with Frank Warren. Jimmy took Terry Stewart as his cut man. And I went with Tony as his cut man. We never, it was never a falling out. It was just a, a separation of yeah, a business. We just went different ways. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. just went different ways. 
I went with Tony. Jimmy went his way. We're all still mates. Jimmy, Jim McDonald was good mates with Danny Toby, wasn't he? From he was. Ago. Yeah, yeah, he was. And that's when um, I sort of expanded on my licences. We were putting our shows on at um, Chigwell at the Prince Regent. We do dinner shows. We did a couple of shows at Brentwood Leisure Centre. And that's when I got my matchmaker's licence and the other licences. But then when we went with Hennessy Sports, there was no real need for me to have all the licences because they had John Ingle as the matchmaker Rob was like the CEO of Hennessy Sports so I just downgraded all my licences and just kept the second strainer's licence and that's how I sort of developed and is that where the relationship with Rob grew then? exactly that yeah yeah. we went with Hennessy our relationship Grew, grew with Rob McCrack and Mick Hennessy and our fighters were under the banner of Hennessy Sports as such I remember back in the early 2000s uh, not long after I got down to London um, I started doing a little bit of training it's the only boxing training I've done really and I don't know how it happened but we ended up working in the same gym in the Lennox Lewis Centre uh, yeah. down in Clapton where, where Rob was with Frotch and, and David Walker and Matthew Thurwell and, uh, and Darren Barker and Howard Eastman and, and all of those boys and yeah. it, it seemed to be a kind of a kind of interesting time really with with that kind of stable of, of fighters and what they were looking to try to try and achieve there I mean you've, you've been around a few different setups now and I guess they're all I guess they're all exactly that I guess they're all different mm, very much so yeah you, you know you, you, you touched upon you know, Frotch the early days and to the end, you know, I'm 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 seeing a number of different setups. The Frotch years was, in terms of backroom staff, there wasn't any. It was just the corner team, and that was really to the end of his career. So there'd be Rob Chief second, me and Tony Sims, then Peter Sims, you know, came a bit later on, and that was it. There was no S&C, nutrition, there was no other backup, and it was a basic setup. I remember you mentioned the Lennox Lewis uh, Academy, it was funny because when I turned professional, well, when I was still amateur, me and um, Robert called me one summer, I'd just come back from winning the silver medal at the Acropolis Cup in Greece, I'd just won the ABAs, I'd gone there and won a silver medal there, and... Robert retired at Fort Howard Eastman in the April, yeah. and I'd spied spar- him for that. I was in the ABA, and then he, he calls me after Athens, and I, I remember ringing him from Athens saying, I'm in the final tomorrow, I'm boxing this kid, and he you know, give me the advice and that, quite close. And uh, he rings me in the summer and says, oh, um, you know, what's your plans? What you just well, I'm, I'm meant to be on the Tama tournament in September, and I'm boxing against America in October. He goes, No, no, you, what are you, look, you're gonna, you know, how, you're gonna stay amateur. What I said, Oh, yeah, yeah, but it all mapped out, you know what I mean? The Olympics, three years. And he said, uh, He said, because what it is, he said, um, you know, me and uh, he goes, Mick's done a deal with Panos, yeah, with the BBC, and we're gonna, uh, he goes, rather than going after some big name professionals, we want to go after some good amateurs to go with Lee Meager, Leo Riley, David Walker, and yeah. you know, we want you and Frutch. And uh, so I went down there and had a meeting with uh, Panas and Mick and uh, and then Paddy Lynch, whose gym I was training at at yeah. the time, got in touch and said, "Look, if you are going to, I think you should stay amateur, but if you're going to turn pro, you, you want to go with Warren. You know, Mick Hennessy is a chance. Uh, this, that, and the other." So 
And to be honest with you, that kind of I thought, yeah, that that that, that this, seems this is quite our, accurate. This, from, this is our boxing. That influence your mindset. So, so from what I knew of Mick at the time, that I didn't seem too hard to believe. So. But, you know, he was good mates with Robert, and I obviously really looked up to Robert. You know, he was from Birmingham. He was by far the best fighter that had been from Birmingham in any, in certainly my time or anyone I'd known. And Since Cowed I'd, out. I'd sparred with him and I'd looked up to him and all this, and uh, we knew a lot of the same people. And uh, I, I ended up going down meeting Warren, and it was like a no-brainer, really, from meeting Frank and meeting, you know, Panas and Mick. But I wanted to go with Robert, but obviously Robert... Equal partners of the best pals, yeah. and and I was like, well, what do I do here? And you know, I remember just being so indecisive that I couldn't sleep for about a week. Like literally, couldn't sleep. I was that torn. I was thinking, I know from a career point of view, Frank Warren's the best man to go with than Mick or Panos. Who you know, Panos was seen to be on the way out, and Mick was. I didn't really trust his uh, his judgment. Um, and he hadn't done it before. Um, and and <laughs> like Barry Lynch said, I thought he was a bit of a chancer. Um, Robert absolutely trusted uh, and everything, but it was it was just kind of that thing really. But it was I've said this to you before, Mark. Yeah. You know, more, I think I ended up turning pro kind of before I knew it. Then I went down had another meeting with Frank Warren, and I was boxing in six weeks. You know, mm. I was eighteen or nineteen, didn't really want to leave home, and I was, you know, I just I hadn't even thought about training. I just stayed training in uh, Paddy Lynch's gym. But it was, and I said this to you, haven't I? I said I think it was the right thing to do going with uh, Frank. But probably, maybe if I'd have done the wrong thing and gone with Mick, it might have actually worked out better. Because I'd have pro- I, my whole career, I think I was searching for a for trainer. Mentor, kept yeah. changing, and and more than a trainer, a mentor. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I was always changing, and uh, I think if I'd have gone with Robert, I probably would have stayed with him my whole career, just like Frotch did. But yeah. we spoke about that. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I can see that when when you you put faith in a trainer, at the end of the day. It's the ultimate care of a fighter. The 12-week camp or, or whatever sort of period you're training with them, you're in that ring with a trainer who you believe in, and that is imperative. And that probably was a, a bit of a lack in your career because your, your trust was probably in Robert McCracken and not the other trainers you, you've maybe worked with. And that's why you, you possibly flitted about from one to another trying to find that rapport because they're not just trainers the lifestyle managers your best mate they're like your dad they're everything that a man on man situation is in terms of relationships yeah I I mean yeah if you're going to get one that to last the course he has to take all those boxes and maybe some others you know it's a pretty unique relationship so if you're going to get with and not only tick those boxes but you've got to you've got to feel he's um, not just that his heart's in the right place place and his agenda's in the right place but you've got to trust his competence yeah you've got to like you know you've got to trust not only is this guy's um, motives correct but I also believe he's good enough to grow with me you know Mm. what I mean and and bring your abilities on yeah, yeah yeah get the best out of you yeah yeah. You hear a bit of background noise, by the way. That's because we're in a gym. The uh, trains are rumbling overhead. You hear the bags swinging in the background. Every now and again, it sounds a, a little bit like we're surrounded by, uh, by a cluster of crows, but these are just gym noises. And it was interesting what you were, what you were saying there, Mark, about with Frotch, it was a tight crew. There was no huge backroom staff. And that's something that people talk about a lot now that there are too many people 
around fighters, people have talked about it endlessly mm. uh, for another fighter that you that you corner, Anthony Joshua, since he lost to, to Andy Ruiz. But Froch isn't that long retired. Five years now, but mm. that was how he always did it. Joe Calzaghe was the same. There yeah. weren't that many right, people yeah. involved. Do you, do you look at it now and do you think that generally it's got to the point where there probably are too many people? Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. It's it's well, it's an old adage, but possibly true that it's different strokes for different folks some people enjoy large crowds some people don't like I said with Froch it was a minimal team his brother used to do the tickets he never worried about ticket sales that was Lee's job and everything else was you know the promoter makes the fights Rob trained him we were the corner team I used to spend the la- you know the sort of last seven to ten days with him either in the apartment at Docklands, Highgate, in Copenhagen, wherever, buying the food. What's Frotch like in the countdown to a fight when you're living in his pocket? I can't can't imagine that. I've got to be honest, we used to have quite a laugh. His humour's very dry. He's got an oddball sense of humour. You've got to know it, don't you? But he never struggled with weight, did he really? Never struggled. At least you never had that problem. We used to have a set of scales. You'd get on the scales, day one, you know, 12 stone, 8 ounces. He was always hovering around 12 stone. For the Groves fight, he was 12-4 on the day of the weigh-in. So it's like, oh, come on, we'll just go for a walk around around Highgate Village. We're walking around the village. Funnily enough, we ended up running because there was a paparazzi pack that were watching some Georgian mansion where George Michael was with his boyfriend. We said, you know, what are you lot doing here? Oh, we're waiting for George Michael. You know, leave him alone. You know, you don't need the grief that you're giving him. Just jog on. So then they start pursuing us and it's like, oh, well. We're getting a bit of a jog on. We got back to the flat and he was like under 12 stone after the, the performance with the paparazzi around I go. That, that's one way of making weight, isn't it? Protecting George Michael, scaring away the paparazzi. That, that'll shift a few ounces in the morning. We, we did that for two days on the spin, funnily enough. So how, you must have been over there in Herning then against Kessler with the, with, with the ash cloud. Those yeah. preparations were, were difficult, I'd imagine. Yeah, they were. Um, we didn't... I say we didn't fly. I didn't fly. I actually... We drove, me, McKennessy, and the two squirrels, Lee and Vicky. They drove like a a sort of Mercedes um, people carrier. We actually got the train from Ashford, drove all the way through Europe, whereas they... I think they flew in on the day of the weigh-in. Um, a, a private one a jet it was a prop so two propellers I know for a fact Rob shit himself 
because he don't like helicopters, he don't like that sort of flight. He's, he's coming to where the weighing was, looking white as a sheet. But we, we got there the day before because we drove in. Funnily enough, it was on the day of my 50th birthday. So me, Mick Hennessy, and a couple of like locals cele- celebrated my 50th in the hotel bar on um, a drink that Mick Hennessy said that Cal Sauerland said was a really nice drink, which was, was Jaeger Bombs. And it was, yeah, got a little bit messy, to say the least. I had a £500 bill at the end of the week where I trashed the room and I didn't even know anything about it, but that's another story. But the, <laughs> we, won't, we, won't, we won't get into those stories. <laughs> well, <laughs> Keep it clean. If, if you get into them, then Macklin will have to get into his and we'll be here all day. We'll be doing a 10-parter. But it, with, with Froch, you know, it, it, it's interesting... Matt's right, you know, we know him well through working with him on Sky and, and he's not what people think. It's his own fault that people have a misconception of him because he's kind of mischievous and, he, and he's more than happy for people to think that he's a, a high and mighty, um, aloof, uh, condescending prick a lot of the time. He's happy for people to think that. He just doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. But that, that journey you went on with him, I mean... What a what a, a run of fights it was those ten twelve fights. Oh, it's unbelievable! You know the, you know from Pascal, it was elite fight or after elite fight or after elite fire, back to back. Really, um, when you when you look at his record, it's unprecedented in in a lot of weight divisions. You know, never mind the super middles. You know, he beats Pascal. His first defence, Jermaine Taylor, who was a top operator top operator his first defence over there in the States and you know when, when, I, when I look back on that on that particular trip it was all engineered for him to lose a title Ludabella was a promoter the dirty tricks that went on you know fight week like what? well we're in Foxwoods weren't it? is it Foxwoods? yeah Foxwoods right further north than Boston everything was in New York press wise so we were getting alright we're in a limousine but it's the travelling so we're going from Foxwoods um, I think it was Connecticut or Passion yeah, Connecticut, yeah, Connecticut. Connecticut yeah so we're up there right the limo will pick you up for the press conference we get that it's like a four hour drive there and back so it's, that's the whole day travelling alright we put you know, DVDs on, had the crack in the car, but it's still very, very tiring. It's still travelling, it's a long day, and, and you know, fight week and whatever, it takes yeah. it out of you. It all should have gone on in the casino, but, you know, they're, they're engineering for Taylor to get the belts. So, I'm trying to think, the way in was in the resort, that was fine. So, the day of the fight, right, the limo will pick you up at X time. Okay, fine. Bearing in mind, it's like probably a 10, 15 minute walk. But we're going to pick you up, we want to film it. The limo never turned up, so we're waiting and waiting and waiting. No limp, right, we'll walk. So that's probably taken 45 minutes to an hour out of the preparation time. Which for a major fight, it's a lot of time. So we get into the changing room. It's no bigger than this ring. It's like an ice box. 
They've got the AC on, kicking out cold air. It was bolted. So I've gone, I'll find the duty manager. We've got to get temperature up in here. It's ridiculous. Found the duty manager. Now we can't do anything about it. I said, of course you can. You know, you've got facility management teams. You can alter the temperature in that changing room. Now we can't do anything about it. Right, okay. Let's get on with it. So I said, right, okay. What time are we monitoring the wraps? Because I always, you know, check the opponent's wraps. I've gone in there. Jermaine Taylor, it's like a sauna. The sweat's pissing out of him. He's warmed up, looking lovely and warm. And I'm thinking, yeah, I can see why our changing room was like an icebox. So, gone in there. I've had a little niggle about this thing that they wanted to put over his wraps on the inside of the glove. It was like a, another tape and that created a bit of furore. We got through that. I've got back into the changing room. By that time, he's probably got 15 minutes on the pads. Because he's been faffing about delaying things or putting his boots on late. And, you know, his mindset wasn't comfortable. So, we get told, right, 10 minutes ring walk. Rob's warming him up. Next indication we get from the ring whip or the, the, the um, commission, you're on now. Come on. And it's like, come on, come on. And they're all barking, shouting and bawling. Get to the lift, get to the lift. And I said, like, well, you know, fucking leave us alone. No, we're the champ. We'll get there when we want to get there. But they won't have it. Barking orders, shouting and bawling. They then put us in a holding pen where the spectators are immediately above our heads. It's like a theatre. So we're waiting in the holding pen. We were stood there probably for about 10, 15 minutes. I know, I know where you mean because that's, that's exactly where I fought Golovkin. Foxwoods. Yeah. I, know, I, know, I, know, I know exactly where you're on about. Yeah. So we're stood just outside the changing rooms. They've shut the door behind us. <coughs> Excuse me. And they've kept us there waiting. All the while, the Yanks, <laughs> there's a lot of expletives going on. We're actually getting spat at. Efton blind at, called this, that, the other. <coughs> and it's all part of the long-term tactics to basically get the belt off us. We're giving it back, as you do do, you know, we're away. We'll fight our man's corner. But he's getting serious abuse, serious abuse. And we're there for ten minutes. When we could have been back in the changing room, then we finally do the ring walk. So how much of this kind of thing does go on? Because you've been around some really, really big fights. I mean, all five of these stadium fights, the three Wembley fights and the two Cardiff fights, you and Rob, I think, probably the only two people who have been cornering uh, for all all five of them. But but you you as well, Matt, the, in big fights, these kinds of strokes behind the scenes, the arguments during rules meetings about gloves, about the way the hands are wrapped, about about anything about the bandage you might want to use, the zinc oxide tape you might want to use. I mean, we don't really see all of this. Even I don't see this as, a, as an observer pretty close to it. I mean, what is that kind of psychological warfare like? Is there a lot of it? Uh, I would, there is quite a high degree. Um, for example, the Parker fight. I wasn't happy about a particular bandage that they were using to me it looked like an elasticated bandage so I've said to Kevin Barry I'm not happy about that bandage I've said to the board official no I'm not either 
I said, well, let's get Robert Smith in. Kevin Barry's picked up the bandage, chucked it on the table, started effing and blinding. We've used this before, we used it for the Fury fight. I said, well, you might have done, but that's not Fury. This is us, I'm not happy with what you're using, and I want to get some jurisdiction on it. I said, you know, continue doing the other hand, but let's get a rolling on this particular bandage. So it probably took about 45 minutes. Then Higgins has piped up. Live on New Zealand TV. This is all mind games from the Joshua camp. This is disgusting. How he He's never short of something to say. Opinionates himself. And okay, you've got your opinion, I've got mine. We just want to do it by the book, by the British Boxing Board of Control rules, who I believe are the best sanctioning body in the world, bar none. So Rob came in, he looked at the bandage, he said, I don't see an advantage to be gained. Use it. Are you happy with that? I said, if you're happy, Rob, carry on. And then we carried on. But then it was all, you know, mind games. We're doing this, we're doing that. It's not. It's just playing by the rules, quite simply. But having said that, if you can find something, it's, it's not the worst thing in the world, is it, if you see something which you think might be slightly irregular, even if you're not really that bothered about it, to just pick up on it anyway. Oh, yeah, right. Because get in there. Absolutely. Just, just nose them up as much as you can. Just create as much havoc in that room as you possibly can. I won't say I'm like... Argue for the sake of it. Just, you know, nah, I'm only joking. But, yeah, it, it, look, no, it's is, true. If there is something there and you're, you're going to pull on it. Yeah, I mean, you do see people... Yeah. I suppose what I'm saying... I have do, seen some horrendous you, things. You do see some horrendous yeah. things and you do get some people that are just picking at things for the sake of picking at things just to cause a drama. Yeah. Uh, you know... Firm but fair, that's always been my attitude. If you're doing it right, do it right. But if you're from Mexico and you're trying to use rope, I've seen rope being used on the thin strips to bind the outside of the glove. I thought, what the fuck are you doing? You, 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 you don't <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You don't want a Margarito Miguel Cotto situation arising. Exactly. So, you know... Exactly. You wear some horrendous stuff. You've got to be careful. Yeah. Well, you have to, yes, you have to stand your ground. We were talking to Peter Fury about exactly this uh, a few weeks back when he was just set to walk when the, when the commission in Germany looked like they weren't going to change the or take out the, the layer of sponge they put under the canvas for the fight between Tyson Fury and Vladimir Klitschko. When you're having these kinds of discussions with, with opposition camps, do you feel now that you've been doing this a long time and yourself and Rob, yourself and Tony, that you can sit opposite the team in a rules meeting and you might not even say anything really, you might not try and cause any kind of issues, but do you feel you can get a good read on them, on how confident they are, on what kind of, uh, on what kind of a crew they are? Definitely, without a doubt. The biggest insult that the Parker team threw at us was in the actual rules meeting where they accused us of being cheats and that I really do take offence to because there's one thing we're not is cheats and that was over the gloves our gloves are sanctioned by the British Boxing Board we're not cheating not at all and they said you're cheating and that really does gall me there's only one other person that said that and that was um, Caller's dad, old man Sauerland. He accused us of being a cheat. And, I, you know, that sticks in my throat. 
because was, that is what we're not. There was an issue, I mean, you know, the Dillian White, Oscar Rivas fight, the, you know, the, the, the type positive chest, the UK had sanctioned the fight, allowed it passed. They were happy with the explanation given. But uh, one issue I think that's kind of got lost, that was, I know, Ross Amber was particularly infuriated about, was that he said that uh, Dillian White came to the ring wearing gloves that they did not sign off on at the rules meetings, that they changed it and they hadn't signed off on it. And he was, I mean, he, he's still annoyed about that. I can understand you know that. Yeah. yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. But I can I could perfectly understand that point. I, I was a switch of kid. It shouldn't happen. The gloves are signed off. You've got your A and B glove. That's it. They're the gloves that are to be used. If that was a situation that's happened, then the board should have signed off on the gloves being agreed that he's walking up on with the other party as well. You know, you've all got to agree. That's why the rules meetings are set up where you agree the gloves, they're all signed off and everything's above board. Well, you mentioned that you take on the role where you go into the opposition changing room and watch them getting their hands wrapped so you can satisfy yourself that it's been done uh, it's been done as it as it should be done. I mean, how often have you observed that uh, and raised some kind of objection, or is it generally? I mean, if someone's standing there watching you, there's not really much point trying to pull some kind of swift one, is there? I wouldn't have thought. No, not at all. But you know, when particularly when you get foreign fighters that their border control probably a bit more lax than the British boxing board. You know, the, 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 the Mandy Campbell fight, he's come over from France, they're putting some sort of lotion on his hands and up his arms. I said, you can't do that. And it smelled quite strong. So there's obviously a chance that's going to go off his arms into Campbell's face. And they kicked off about it. They're chucking the tape everywhere. You know, the, the British Boxing Board rules are quite, you know diligent and accurate in what's required in terms of hand wrapping and if I say something that I'm not happy with in my knowledge of you know the rules and hand wrapping then I will raise it quite happily and and bring it up I've I've seen so many hand wraps and I made a point with the board the other way I've never seen one hand wrap the same everything is completely different every fighter has different hand wraps a lot of fighters continually moan about when they're getting their hands done. Arthur Abram did not stop moaning throughout his hand wrapping. Constant moaning to his fighter, to his, uh, to his trainer. I actually felt sorry for him, the, the, the trainer that was doing his wraps. But that showed to me that there was an underlying factor why he was moaning so much. He was probably quite apprehensive. Yeah, he was edgy. And I said to Rob, he's not happy in there. And it's evident, and Frotch gave him a boxing lesson that night. I'd guess with someone like Frotch that his his head being in the right place probably wasn't too difficult a thing to achieve because he was very, very focused. In a way that not everybody is. Very, very consistent, that might be the right word, actually, in his, in his kind of mentality. But there are other occasions, I'm sure, where, where the... 
the corner have some work to do in the dressing room. You realise they're not quite where they need to be, and you need to kind of you need to kind of get them there because you've reached a point where there's no you know there's no going back. I, I think of I think of Atlantic City and, and 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 Darren Barker and what a huge night that was for him and how incredibly emotional that was. Are, are there any particular occasions that that stick out for you? There is, there is actually, and it's probably the Frotch defeat against Ward. It was Atlantic City, it was around Christmas time. My sense was he really didn't want to be there. It was Christmas, his family weren't there. He thought the fight was going to be in Vegas. And it wasn't probably the event that it should have been. It should have had a Vegas billing. And I remember seeing Fratch and uh, Robert out in uh, in New York. Cause I was living over at the time. I'd moved out there in the September when I signed with the Bella yeah. after the Sturm fight. And um, I remember seeing them. There was and Miguel Cotto fought Margarito the week before. I think Fratch fought Ward. But obviously, with the fight in Atlantic City, they had the press conference and everything in New York and then went to Atlantic City on the Wednesday yeah. night. So... I remember meeting up with them, actually seeing them down because they were training out of Trinity. Yeah, we was there, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember I remember seeing you there. Yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. It was spark, right, yeah, I think it was a bit chocolate. <coughs> it was a bit of a flat event. It wasn't the Super 6 final it could have been. And I think in the back of Carl's mind, that was quite forefront. And he started perilously slow. He really did. And he was chasing the fight and... If it had been a 15-round fight, he probably possibly could have beaten him, but it wasn't, and he lost. But it, that was a good example of trying to get somebody up who really wasn't, I don't think, up for that final because of the timing of it and what it what it should have been in his in his mindset. I mean, when you talk about those, when you think about those two those two fights that that he had with with George Groves Carl Frotch and they were they were huge occasions particularly the second one at Wembley and what happened in the first one which we really didn't expect pretty much pretty much led on to the to the second one to the second one happening uh, Mark's just nipped off to get a quick uh, a quick swallow of water and, and Mark what I was just saying to Matt was that those two fights between Frotch and Groves in a way, they were kind of the gateway to these huge fights that we've become somehow quite quite used to. Mm. But the, they, they were mayhem in a lot of ways in terms of what was going on because Frotch gets knocked down in that first round of that first fight and the whole arena explodes. And in the corner, I mean, wow, nothing like that has ever happened to him before. It must have been... The adrenaline must have been flowing for that one. Yeah, I mean... I can't swear, but my reaction was, WTF, what's going on here? Never seen him deck. We saw him get decked by Taylor, Taylor, but that was more of a flash knockdown. He looked at us and he was copus mentis. But that was a... He went down heavy. He went down heavy. His eyes were in the back of his head. But that, you know, that that says to me what a chin he had. Oh, to me, that that, that would have knocked out any fight. Shows how hard Carl Frotch is because yeah. he, he 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 could see he he didn't think George Groves was on his level. 
he dismissed him really. Totally. You know, and, and he almost felt insulted that he thought, you think you can beat me. There was and a lot of build-up to yeah. that that I can explain and he, on. he was a yeah. bit lucky he weren't really up for it, do you know what I mean? But and yeah. obviously Groves totally was. Mm. Leaved in himself massively, had a really good game plan, approached it brilliantly. And what a first round. And I remember when it, watching it when he went down, because I, I thought Frotch I was going to stop him. I uh, had him a big favour. In my head, I thought, nah, Carl, it's far too hard for him. He's cheating, everything. I just thought he'd be... Yeah. And when it, he went down in the first round, he went down heavy. And he went so heavy that when he was getting up, his leg, he, you know, he was kind of, his leg wasn't there. You could see his legs were still gone. And I was thinking, he's going to get done here. Yeah. He, you know, he ain't going to get through this round. Mm. And he did get through the round. And I think it took him a few rounds to shake that off. Six rounds. Yeah, it took him a good yeah. while yeah. to shake that off. Yeah. But once he did get into it, and it was mad because, you know, when the ref stopped the fight and then, you know, Carl was saying, yeah, it should have been stopped. I think if Carl had... If Carl's interview after had been kind of different, if it had been like, if he'd have been the one annoyed saying, I'm fuming, I was just about to knock him out mm. and the ref has robbed me of my finish. Yeah, you're you right. Know, I, it, you wouldn't have got that, but mm. it went the way it went and we got the rematch and what, a, what mm. an occasion, I'd like you say. Yeah. And the, that, that was probably the catalyst then for these big stadium fights. Yeah, with yeah definitely. The, 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 I think I'm right in saying, and Carl will agree with me, there was a high degree of complacency going into Massive. the first Groves fight. He was doing some sort of dancing thing on ITV. And, and Groves stepped up to the, the plate and was probably better than it, you know, we Groves thought. Was a, yeah, you know, good yeah. fighter. Very good fighter did, did, and, and did, proved it. Did you sense that there was, was going to be a problem with that first fight? Did you, did you still feel that he would have enough to beat Groves or did you register that kind of complacency and just think this could be an interesting evening not necessarily that he was going to get banjoed in the first round but was there something in your mind with 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 all the corners you've been in and particularly all of his that made you think you know this is not going to be straightforward yeah um because of the previous spars that they'd had and the spars that i'd seen i thought carl would have won the first fight a bit more comfortably than he did but there was a, numer- a number of issues that interrupted the camp, the dancing situation. He had, as bizarre as it sounds, really bad athlete's foot. He had really bad cuts in his feet, which interrupted with his sparring. So that cut his sparring down, which is key, particularly for Carl, was key in any camp that he did. But his mindset, because of the spars he had previously, when George was a sparring partner, he thought that fight was a shoo-in. And there was one particular statement in the changing room. David A came in, and they're chatting away. And Carl went to David A, he's my ugly Harrison. David A went, Carl, he's not. This kid can fight and he can punch. And I thought, that's showing his mindset. That, for me... Isn't a good sign. It, there's, there's, there's no doubt that Carl was far too lackadaisical yeah. in that first round, and, and and Groves, you know, started so well and totally believed in himself, and, and rightly so, and nearly, nearly, nearly got that fight done in the round. I, I, only Carl had such a solid chin, and he was such a tough guy. Ninety-nine point nine percent fighters wouldn't Fr- have got through Frotch that first round. has got that ingredient that you can't teach to any fighter. He's an hard man. And you need that magic ingredient to get to the top. If you're not an hard case, you're not going to get there. And he, and he had that untaught 
inside ingredient. Yeah, there's absolutely no question about that. And, and then, of course, that took us all to to Wembley, which is somewhere that you become familiar familiar with. I mean, it's it's an incredible state of affairs, really, over the last few years. I mean, how different are those big stadium fights? Just sheer logistics. Everything's different. The the walk from the dressing room to the ring is just so much longer. You're there by this square of light situated mm. in the middle of this kind of vastness. It's just, it's a difficult one to get your head around, really, that you're right in the middle of all of this. Totally. Um, and like you said, you know, the ring walk is so much further. You know, I, I always say, use the ring walk as part of your warm-up. It's going to take you that much longer to get there. You know, do some jogging, do a lot of shadow work on your approach to the ring. Because that, that, that is a creative warm-up in itself. But the, the enormity of it, you don't really... All you focus on as part of a team is the ring. But when you look up and you see, like, 90-odd thousand, you think, jeez, this is, this is big. This is really big. I must say, you know, when... Obviously, the knockout win in the, in the rematch and the first fight with Groves... I was happy when Groves got over the line and won that world title. Yeah, I was. I think it would yeah. have been a travesty, hadn't yeah. it? You know, there's been a lot of good fighters. And I, I consider myself one of them that you know has got really close but didn't get one or should have won or did whatever. But Groves, uh, I, was, I remember when he won the world title. I was, uh, I was really, really happy line. for him. You know, because yeah. he deserved it. You know, I, I said to Carl Salaland in the ring after Carl had done what he did. I said, Carla, stick with him. There's a world title in him." He's got the ability, he will win you a world title. And, you know, we struck on it and we agreed and he did, you know. So pretty much as soon as he had finished, you went all the way through with him, with Frotch, who's one of the best fighters we've had in uh, in the UK of the last 20, 30 years. You could put that resume up alongside absolutely anybody's. No sooner had he finished than Anthony Joshua had just started because he turned pro in 2013. And you've been with him all the way through too. Were you confident from the early days with him that he would go on to do what he's done? Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I saw Josh develop, you know, as an amateur from going up to Sheffield with Carl, seeing all the kids develop you know, under Rob's guidance um, with the GB set up. And you could tell that there was that something special about him. I watched him win the Olympic title in London. And, you know, I was I was hoping at that stage that he would turn over with the right setup. And, you know, ultimately for me, he made the right decision. And... There's a high degree of getting the best out of fighters and there's a high degree of having a gift. And some fighters are gifted and some aren't. And I I just think Josh has got that gift, but Rob does get the best out of him as well. So in terms of his fights, how long before the fight will will you be in attendance? Will you be part of the part of the team if you like an integral part of fight night of course you said with Frotch you would you would arrive maybe 10 days out and kind of help him in the later stages how is it with AJ uh, it's usually the final week or um, I might pop up to Sheffield as well a couple of days or I'll pop into Finchley 
where, where he um, he still trains as well. With you know Rob tends to do the early part of the week in Finchley, and switches up to Sheffield in the latter part of the week. So I just do do a bit of mix and match as and as and when I can sort of get in really. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on lives in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. It's been a very interesting last three, four months. We, we were all there in, in, in Madison Square Garden, of course, and, and me and Matt were, were almost as close to it as you were. And so much has been, been written about it. So much has been said about it. Some of it very, very recently what was that experience like because you've been doing this for comfortably long enough to know that anything can happen but that was not what anyone expected to happen absolutely but the one thing is in the heavyweight division they can all punch they're all heavy handed they're all big blokes and when Ruiz was, was made the new opponent, I actually said, this is a far harder fight than Miller. He's got a stellar amateur record. I watched the Parker fight live. We, we had a show on up in Manchester. I watched it on a tablet with Tony Sims, and I said, he's won the fight, but he's not going to get the nod in New Zealand. So he's going to be aggrieved at that. I, I thought he won the fight. Um, and, you know, I said all along, Andy Ruiz was, was a far harder opponent. And, you know, you know, Matt, Matt will say, when you get an opponent switch so late on, it does put in a degree of complacency, I think. You know, all the talk, even when the Miller fight was happening, was about Wilder. It was all Wilder, Wilder. He's very clever in what he does. He'll pipe up. You know, a couple of weeks out, well, and remind people he's there and he's going to do this and he's going to do that. And well, I remember the week of the fight, and we, like you say, Andy, we were there, and they announced the Ortiz Wilder fight, and then they announced Wilder Fury all in the week, and that that was completely to take the fo- maybe to take the press and the attention yeah. away from the fight from a uh, promotional selling. I think that's right, yeah. But I think also it took Joshua's focus away because all the questions. When we did the fighters meeting, we were there for over an hour. It was there were all two about Wilder. Questions about Andy Ruiz. All the rest yeah. were about Wilder and Fury. And I don't for me, care who you are, that is going to take your focus away. Definitely. And for me, that sums it up. There's coupled with that, I think there's a bit of complacency. You take your mind off what's in front of you. You should only look at what is in front of you immediately and not beyond. And I think, you know, I, I think there was a bit of complacency. Um, How was he in the in the week of the fight for you? Because we see him and we'll make our judgments as to how we think he looks. And 
if he'd won that fight, the fact that he was really relaxed during fight week, we'd all have said, oh, brilliant, he was so relaxed, you know, and that was why he won, and that was great. But because he lost, the fact that he was relaxed was why he, was why he lost, and everything gets flipped on its head, depending on whether yeah, you win or whether you lose. Yeah. But you've seen him in every fight he's had up until that point. Was he different? Did you think? There was nothing different. He got caught by an heavy-handed, fast heavyweight. The talk of about, I'll dispel a few myths. The panic attack in the changing room didn't happen. His protector was slipping. He changed the protector. He put his number two protector on. And that delayed us by about 15 minutes. We're faffing about, taking his shorts on, putting on. That's the panic attack, dispelled. He got knocked out in sparring by a Bulgarian heavyweight. Didn't happen. He wasn't even in camp sparring him. He's never been knocked out in sparring in any camp from day one. So the two myths that go out there, or they think that are, are facts, didn't happen whatsoever. He got beaten by the better heavyweight on the night. I checked the raps of Ruiz. I'm in the changing room, and I saw before me a man who was basically to- totally comfortable... He's got a pair of raggy old jeans on, a t-shirt, in, in his socks. And I tend to, I take a picture of the raps when they're doing it. And he saw me taking the picture and he's gone like that. Give me the thumbs up and a fist pump. And I've gone out of there, I thought, fuck, he don't give a flying whatsoever about this fight. We've got a real fight on our hands. So when you've seen something like that, would you, would you communicate that to Rob? Or at that point, is there really no... Is there any point in that, relaying that information as to how you feel Ruiz no, is? No, I did tell Rob that. I said, Rob, we've got, you know we've got an handful, but we have got an handful. He's so relaxed in there. And, you know, I think, I think we're going to have a very hard fight, which I thought anyway. You know, the, I, I told Rob that. I missed the funny thing. Obviously, I was over there two weeks before for the Wilder Brazil fight, and he banjoed him in a round. So there was... There was Indirect pressure for Joshua to, do it to go quicker. And make a statement, absolutely, and yeah. you know, bang yeah. out Ruiz, who aesthetically to the layman who didn't follow boxing, didn't look terrible, didn't they? But to people who knew boxing, who actually knew Ruiz and followed his record, there was absolutely nothing in his pre in his record going into that fight to suggest it was going to be an easy night. Nothing. Everybody just got Far carried away. Yeah. Everybody just got carried away, yeah, didn't everyone, they? Was saying, everyone, "Oh, he's going to get stopped in away. three, in six, it, in in whatever." Like you say, he'd never even been on the canvas there was before. Nothing at all to suggest it was going to be an easy and night. That, and that's exactly right, Matt. You know, Matt said said it. The non-boxing purists just see a fat guy. But what they don't know about is his pedigree. His professional record he's and what, what he's done. Guy, that's his body. That's his physique. He's never looked yeah. aesthetically good, but he, he was, like you say, a stellar amateur. Yeah. He's been a great professional. One loss in New Zealand to Parker. Debatable decision. So there's nothing on the record to suggest it was going to be an, an early night. But it, and I, I mean, I, everyone was picking early, not, uh, early wins. I mean, I, I said, I think, between six and eight. And I'll be honest, I didn't really think that, but I got, I kind of felt under pressure that, fucking, if I say this is going to go long and he does it yeah. in three rounds like everyone's saying, I'm going to look stupid. I thought the same I thing. I thought swayed. eight to ten rounds, it'll bust him up round the body and, and, you know, gradually, systematically, you know, <laughs> well, and I'll tell work you him thing, over. Now, lads, as we're sitting here, 
there's nothing going into this rematch to say it's going to be an easy fight either just because he's more up for it or more you know he's also going to have a lot more doubts mm. you know this is this rematch in my opinion is going to be harder than the first fight ever should have been for the rematch um, do you um, have even more of a role to play the, the kind of tight corner team around him just to make sure that that in the week building up to the fight on the night particularly that he is absolutely where he needs to be is there a danger that obviously there are going to be more nerves for him there are going to be mm. more doubts for him he's he's coming back from a first professional defeat it's new for all of you is that something is that something you've thought about yourself yeah um, it is and I committed my thoughts on an email which will remain private that I sent to Josh and you know I, I would like to see him adopt the same approach that Carl took on Gross 2 which was Spartan 12 weeks of a Spartan camp no commercial stuff purely boxing well, I, I think what's, what's key is that the fight is fought at the range where he wants it he's a taller bigger man gotta be tall Kick, kick, basic yeah. double jab right hand yeah. keep him on the end of the jab you don't want to get into a mid-range shootout puck no. in with a hooker who's got better hand speed than you yeah. who's a yeah. smaller guy I think it's when I put down Robert you know said you know double jab right hand and uh, someone said you know that's quite basic he needs to give him a bit more in the corner it was basic and I, but I was like no but it's basic what he needs to do yeah. he needs to keep this fight long he's a, he's a six foot six guy against a, a short man yeah. but keep him keep him at that range yeah. you know you don't want to I think when he put him down you know he went into a shootout exchange shootout mode with, with that he did know, with Dillian White don't hook with a hooker yeah. don't hook with a hooker but he did the same things with, with, with Dillian yeah. and he got clicked got through it did the same with Vladimir got click got through it unfortunately he didn't get through this this shootout so after the fight when you're back in the when you're back in the dressing room you've all been around boxing a long time and I'm sure it won't have been long before the likes of yourself and Rob and, and it was a slightly different corner from usual I don't think that would necessarily have made that much difference but Tony wasn't there, uh, Peter wasn't there. But yourself and Rob, who've been there from the start, you'll have known what was coming next, which was going to be every man, woman and their dog was going to look for reasons why he lost that fight. And Rob would be looked at, even you might be looked at, everybody who was perceived to play any kind of a role would be looked at. I, I guess you knew that was on the way. We knew that there would be a very, very high degree of um, scrutiny on what was said, the approach to the fight, the tactics, what Rob was saying, what Josh was saying. It doesn't help when you've got the, you know, the, the mics right on the corner. You've got social media analysing it. You've got all these so-called boxing experts on the websites analysing it who, you know, quite frankly, some of them have never put a pair of gloves on in their life, but I think they're all boxing experts. You know, what, what I've found, particularly with the heavyweight division, it's a blue ribbon division, it is under that much more scrutiny, and there is a lot more people that want to have their say. You know, I, I don't do social media. 
and ever will. I think it causes more problems than it's than it's worth. But you know, it's, it's a sign of the times. The fighters are on it, and sometimes to take too much notice of what's been said. If you just focus on the right people that have given you the right advice from day one, then you you go in the right way to to get a good career and dispel all the nonsense that gets chucked out there. Yeah, I think you, you know you. If you got, if you ask too many people their opinion, you're just going to be more confused. Yeah. You know, you're just going to be more indecisive. I think have a couple of people one, two, three, whatever, you know, a, a few people whose opinions you value, who you've always trusted their opinion, and, and keep it keep it simple. The more people you ask, the more the more opinions you're going to get, the more more indecisive you're going to be. Yeah, more confusion sets in. It's like, it's like any sort of walk of life. The more people that are putting ideas into your head, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. It's, oh, should I, should I? No, you just listen to the one steadfast factor that has been steadfast throughout your career. You know, Sean Murphy, Rob McCracken, Josh has said, why should I change it? You know, I'm not cut from that cloth. So we'll see the the fruits of his labour, I think we will see in Saudi Arabia. It's always struck me that one of the most difficult things about being him, basically, is that everybody has got so much to say about everything you do. And when things are going well, every decision you make is the right one and you're brilliant and then all of a sudden when you lose every decision you make is the wrong one uh, and you're an idiot and that's just how that's just how it is when you're at that level that that is just how how it is people don't want to hear things like well he just got caught with a big heavy shot and he didn't recover this is what happens in heavyweight boxing that's not good enough there's an explanation that's not good enough there's got to be some kind of you know moon landing conspiracy in there somewhere mm. that, that, that's right you know people saying these drinks have been spiked and there was just like so much nonsense flying around you know like, like I said earlier I don't do social media but I've got mates who do and they were putting things over to me and I'm looking at them, you know I actually, I actually switched my phone off for a period because some of the stuff that I was getting sent was just bordering on Totally, totally ridiculous. Did, did you get chased by the papers or by any kind of media, particularly afterwards, wanting to know what what happened? I did at the hotel, but I just went round to the Irish bar and just kept out of the way. Sought solace in a few Irish whiskies and a few Guinnesses and a few IPAs, and you know, just I'm very much a private person in in a lot of ways, and I don't court court the press. If they want my opinion, I will just be very succinct. And it was a bad night for Anthony Joshua. And that, and that, and that is it. But like you said, Andy, the, the scrutiny at that division is just huge. Huge. It's the biggest, it's the biggest sporting accolade on the planet. The heavyweight champion of the world is the biggest icon that walks the earth at any one time. You know, you've got your Olympic 100 metre champion, you've got your athletes in other sports. Nothing supersedes the heavyweight champion of the world. That's absolutely true. Uh, luckily for us, you've been, you've been happy to talk at length today, so we won't keep you too much longer. Before we go, they're not that easy, these kinds of questions. It's a bit like asking somebody what your favourite film is, but what, what's the strangest thing that has happened to you in, in boxing? 
do you think? The strangest situation you've you found yourself in? That's difficult to nail any one particular one. Particularly when you spend a career working with Frotch. I mean, I'm about yeah. 15 off him the, alone. The <laughs> I've got a few. There's situations with Darren Barker when Michael Buffer got his name wrong. My heart just absolutely sank when he called him Darren Baker. And I thought, he's in the biggest fight of his life and you've got his name wrong. And I looked at Darren and, he, and I could just tell he thought, fuck, what have you just said? But we got on with it. But there was another situation with the Taylor fight with Frotch. When we were doing a, we used to do check weigh-ins every day and we had to go to this little office. And when, when we um, were going in this little office, I, I don't think you'll mind me saying, we used to nick a few cans of energy drinks. They were all like stacked in the corner. And it was like a crate at a time. He doesn't like to pay for stuff. That's one thing we do know. <laughs> so, so, it's on, so it's after the weighing now. Luda Bella went, what have you done with all those energy drinks? And we've got... What are you talking about? What are you done with them? Then the penny dropped. They've obviously got a camera on the scales watching him weigh in. And we just saw, well, you know, they've all been consumed, Lou. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks very much. We're flying. Yeah. <laughs> well energised. That was the rock star ones, which were a bit rare over in the UK. That is, well, that, that shouldn't really surprise me. That, that That's, yeah, I mean, Frotch getting his hands on free stuff that's um, that, that's him all over to be honest but uh, Mark it's been great fun it's been great fun catching up we'll uh, we'll let you go now I think we've, we've, we've kept you for long enough but we'll, we'll see you in Saudi Arabia anyway and uh, we'll do this again at some point because it's always really interesting to get the view from the corner you get such a unique look at fighters behind the scenes that, that we don't get uh, and luckily for us you're, you're happy to to share some of that a lot of it has to remain behind closed doors and we completely understand that so again thanks for your time and we'll see you we'll see you down the road and thanks for listening everybody if you get the chance as usual normal things get onto iTunes give us uh, give us a rate subscribe and uh, write us a review if you've got the time and we'll be back again soon get someone sneaking round a corner could that someone be Mac the Knife? There's a tugboat down by the river, don't you know? Where a cement bag just... Sports Social Podcast Network. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.